Welcome to season two. This is the second episode, but the first part of what I call what's new in biography. The second part I will broadcast next week. In each of these two parts, I'm going to look at uh, six biographies uh, published in 2021. These are not reviews. I'm, I have only one criteria, and that is when I picked up the book and started to look at the biography and started to read it, did I want to continue reading? Which is to say these are not reviews because I haven't read all these books. I hope to, uh, but right now I'm just taking a look at, as I say, what seems to be new or refreshing or interesting in biography. And part of what I want to say, the point I want to make, is that um, every time I read a biography, especially a new biography, it reinvents for me what biography is and the way it can be arranged and the way a life can be told. And I think that's an important point because too often... Uh, biographies are dismissed as uh, really the conventional branch of literature. Uh, they're chronological. They plot along telling the story of a whole life. Now, the biographies I've selected um, aren't all chronological, or at least not strictly chronological. They play with time, and I don't see why a biography, since it is a book, and can be a work of art, I don't see why it can't take those kinds of liberties with chronology. But I also want to say that no conclusion should be drawn from my picking just these six biographies so far. There's more to come, and I have nothing against a strictly chronological biography either. So let's get started with the first title. The title is Monica Jones, Philip Larkin and Me, Her Life and Long Loves by John Sutherland. I just want to read a paragraph um, of this biography, which is also a memoir. It's what you might call a Boswellian biography, in which the biographer knows, uh, was friends with, in this case, the subject of the biography. Speaking of Monica Jones, John Sutherland writes, But did I truly know her? I am shaken by some of the things I have now seen in her letters. In her for-your-eyes-only intercourse with Philip, that's Philip Larkin, of course, there is a veritable basket of snakes, racism, spite, foul-mouthed lapses, shared misogyny, and acidic streams of downright nastiness. She never opened that basket to me, close as I thought I was to her. But then, she never displayed her Christian faith, something which has struck me reading her letters. I have written this book in a shaken spirit. Was the Monica I knew, intimately as I thought until a year or two ago, illusory? I wish I had never read the things I told the archives curator, Dr. Priestman, in a moment of gloom. Well, I want to read more uh, of this book. Uh, it's a fascinating way to do a biography. 
I love his phrase, I have written this book in a shaken spirit. It gets us really close to the biographer and also um, calls up these moments in research where we do have reactions, which we may change later on. But he says, you know, I wish I'd never read these things because he's reading about a friend, which brings up, you know, a really interesting point about biography. Sometimes biographers learn things that the subjects, even the subject's closest friends are shocked or astonished and often want to deny actually happened. Um, that's a kind of privilege uh, to a kind of knowledge that biographers have. Okay, I'm just going to stop for a second to let you write down the title of this book if you're so inclined. Monica Jones, Philip Larkin, and Me, Her Life in Long Loves. It's by John Sutherland, of course, a well-known British critic. Now I'm turning to Burning Man, The Trials of D.H. Lawrence by Francis Wilson. This book has already gotten a number of, you know, very, um, uh, very fine reviews, reviews which uh, are very impressed with uh, Francis uh, Wilson's book. It starts with um, not an introduction, not a preface, not a prologue, but simply with the word argument. And there are two epigraphs. The first one is from Aldous Huxley in the Paris Review, 1960. Huxley says, Isn't it remarkable how everyone who knew Lawrence felt compelled to write about him? Why, he's had more books written about him than any writer since Byron. The second epigraph is from D.H. Lawrence from his book Studies in Classic American Literature, published in 1923. Lawrence writes the very famous um, sentence from this book, a couple of sentences. Never trust the teller, trust the tale. The proper function of a critic is to save the tale from the artist who created it. Okay, now here are Francis Wilson's first words uh, in the biography. This is the first paragraph, and I'll, I'll stop after the first paragraph to comment. She writes, Everyone who knew him told tales about D.H. Lawrence, and D.H. Lawrence told tales about everyone he knew. The tales that Lawrence told about his friends, who consequently became his enemies, can be found in his fiction, and the tales that his friends and enemies told about Lawrence can be found in the numerous memoirs and portraits that appeared after his death, and the spate of novels which feature a thin and bearded prophet. He also again and again told tales about himself. No writer before Lawrence had made so permeable the border between life and literature, or held so fast to his native right to put everything he was into a book. Fabulous first paragraph. What's most interesting about this paragraph to me is the use of repetition, the word tales. It appears so often in this paragraph. Often, when we speak of something as being repetitive, it's a pejorative term. You know, the writer repeats himself, herself over and over again. But this has a, a rolling rhythm, a bounce to it, uh, that I think makes you want to read along, to read further into this book, set up by those epigraphs that says, you know, Lawrence is all about tale-telling. 
she goes on in the second paragraph to lay out the structure of her book, that her book Burning Man is a triptych of self-contained biographical tales which take as their subject three versions of Lawrence. My focus is on his middle years, the decade of superhuman energy and productivity between 1915 when the rainbow was prosecuted and 1925 when he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Inferno is set largely in England, Purgatory is set largely in Italy, and Paradise takes place largely in the American Southwest. I say largely because after 1912, Lawrence, who was a different man in every place, was never in the same place for more than a few months. He and his wife Frida roamed the world like gypsies and slept like foxes in dens. Well, I could go on and on and on, but it's, it's, it, it really draws you in. Uh, I'll pause again and tell you I've been reading from Burning Man, the Trials of D.H. Lawrence by Francis Wilson. Okay, number three, <clears throat> Edward White's book, The Twelve Lives of Alfred Hitchcock. So that already is <clears throat> taking you into a different sort of structure, a biography. Let me read the contents page. Um, it'll give you some idea of what's going on here. The Boy Who Couldn't Grow Up, Chapter 1. Chapter 2, The Murderer. Chapter 3, The Auteur. 4, The Womanizer. 5, The Fat Man. 6, The Dandy. 7, The Family Man. 8, The Voyeur. 9, The Entertainer. 10, The Pioneer, 11, The Londoner, and 12, The Man of God. I think kind of provocative way to set things out uh, in the biography. Um, from the introduction, a paragraph. Though Hitchcock often insisted he was a very straightforward sort of fellow, his complex personality remains a source of fascination and contention. He had an enormous ego and fragile self-esteem. His capacity for self-disgust was equaled by his self-regard. While he possessed great surety in his abilities and opinions, he was in constant need of affirmation from those closest to him as well as from the complete strangers who constituted his audience. He had an unmatched ability for communicating emotional experience, yet he displayed little consciousness, little conscious understanding of his own emotions and seemed to feel always wary of and threatened by other people. Hitchcock promoted competing, contradictory ideas about himself. He asked us to believe that he was both a nervous wreck and a man of sang-froid. He took pride in his refinement and sophistication, at the same time battling to control his appetites. He felt empowered and appalled by his masculinity. Although he saw himself as an ally of women, his name has become synonymous with male predation and abuse of power. He presented himself as full of knowledge, knowingness, and control, but he lived and died baffled by himself, frightened by what he knew about this world and what he didn't about the next. So again, the rhythm, the, the uh, antitheses, the, the uh, contradictory nature of the subject is captured in the sentences themselves. Uh, here's a paragraph from chapter one, The Boy Who Couldn't Grow Up. 
A year and a half after the end of World War I, Londoners were used to ghosts walking among them. The absent were present in every street of the capital, lives finished but unresolved, stalking those left behind. J.M. Barrie, the creator of Peter Pan and the most celebrated playwright of his day, was one of many who was haunted by his loss. The war had claimed his friend Charles Froman, the Broadway producer who had been instrumental in his theatrical success, as well as George Llewellyn Davies, one of the brothers on whom Barry had based the Lost Boys. I won't tell you where this paragraph is going, but again, it's setting the scene. It's giving you a sense of history. It's uh, giving you the, the sort of the climate out of which Alfred Hitchcock arose. Biography is often faulted for concentrating too much on the individual, but as you can see, there's a way of writing about the environment in which the individual arises that can be a part of biography as well. So again, let's pause for The Twelve Lives of Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, it has a subtitle, An Anatomy of the Master of Suspense, and it's written by Edward White. The next book, you still writing? I'll wait a, I'll wait a second. The next book, Fierce Poise, Helen Frankenthaler and 1950s New York, is by Alexander Nemiroff. Now, I'm just going to read one paragraph because it really in intrigued me. I know almost nothing about Frankenthaler. And, and that's what a biographer can do for you, of course. Suddenly interest you in the subject. You say, oh, well, I'm not interested in art or I'm not interested in women artists or it's not my field or whatever. Um, the, the, any subject is a potential interest if you're loyal to biography as I am uh, whether you think ostensibly the subject's going to interest you or not here's a paragraph from the introduction the moments of a day's existence are often a homely combination a pigeon waddling on the sidewalk an overflowing trash can the bright white shirt and black glossy hair of a passerby. Focused on bigger things, larger goals, we learn to ignore such ephemeral experiences. But who is to say that fragile sensations do not carry their own weight, that they do not amount to a rich record of who we are, who indeed we will have been? Helen devoted herself to portraying these ambient and fleeting impressions. Without theorizing it, she relied on her own protean sense of life to convey the buzzing, flashing world around her in New York and the landscapes beyond. Rivers and streams, sunlight on sand, a gentle curl of surf, her blots and swaths of bright color suggest private feelings and experiences, the movements of one person in time. It's, it's lovely, lovely writing in a lovely way. It's very difficult to write about art, isn't it? Uh, it's not verbal, and yet you have to verbalize it. I think that's an interesting way to do it. It also, as I'm reading it, and I think this probably happens to you too when you're reading a book. It doesn't have to be a biography, but for me it often is. Um, to think about how things are now when you're reading about how things were then. And I think about uh, all the time, what New York is like now when I walk in New York and everyone is looking at a phone. They're texting. They're not looking at the city at all. They're not looking at the people in the city. 
or they've got, you know, those headphones on, probably noise canceling, so they can't hear a damn thing. Uh, and I wonder why. It used to be that they were talking on those phones. Now they're not even talking. They're just staring at the screen and I guess texting. It just seems absolutely absurd to me and such a, a deprivation of uh, experience uh, of what should be happening wherever you are in the city, in the country, wherever. Again, let me read the title of this book. It's Howard, uh, sorry, Alexander. It said Howard Nemirov. I was thinking of the poet Howard Nemirov. No, it's Alexander Nemirov. Fierce Poise, Helen Frankenthaler, and 1950s New York. Ask somebody today, all those people on their phones walking through the city, what was New York like in 2021? Well, they can't say I was on my phone. Another book by John Higgs, H-I-G-G-S. John Higgs, William Blake versus the world. That sounds rather contentious, doesn't it? William Blake versus the world. There have been several biographies of William Blake. I haven't read them all. Um, the biographer, um, uh, renowned biographer of um, Shelley and Coleridge, Richard Holmes, uh, touts is very high on the biography uh, by William Gilchrist, the first biography of William Blake. And of course, there's the um, uh, classic book, Fearful Symmetry by Northrop Fry, who happened to be one of my uh, teachers at the University of Toronto. Uh, this book, John Higgs's book, is nothing like what Fry or Gilchrist uh, would have written. Um, I asked someone who, ha who knows Blake, uh, books about Blake very well, whether this book, uh, she was reading it, seemed fresh to her, new to her, and she said yes, she thought it was. So let me just read a few paragraphs from William Blake versus the World. Chapter one is called The End of a Golden String. On 10 December 1825, the 50-year-old English lawyer Henry Crabb Robinson attended a dinner at the home of his friend, the London businessman Charles Aders. Eliza, Aders's wife, was a painter and printmaker and she had invited a few artist and engraver friends to the party. Over the course of the evening, Robinson became increasingly fascinated by one of the guests, an elderly, relatively unknown poet and painter by the name of William Blake, whose conversation casually roamed from the polite and mundane to the beatific and fantastic. Blake was short, pale, and a little overweight, with the accent of a lifelong Londoner, he was dressed in old-fashioned threadbare clothes, and his gray trousers were shiny at the front through wear. His large, strong eyes didn't seem to fit with his soft, round face. Robinson noted in his diary that he had an expression of great sweetness, but bordering on weakness, except when his features are animated by expression. And then he has an air of inspiration about him. For all his wild notions and heretical statements, Blake was pleasant company and easy to like. The aggressive and hectoring voice of his writings was not the Blake those who met him recall. Many years later, another guest at that party, Maria Denman, remarked, 
One remembers even in age the kindness of such a man. That's part of what we go to biography for, isn't it? It's to learn about the work, but in my case, it's to learn about the man or the woman who created the work and who can in some ways surprise us, as I think we are meant to be surprised by this biography. What made Blake so fascinating, Higgs goes on, was the casual way in which he talked about his relationship with the spirit world. Blake, Robinson wrote, spoke of his paintings as being what he had seen in his visions. And when he said, my visions, it was in the ordinary, unemphatic voice in which we speak of trivial matters that everyone understands and cares nothing about. Blake peppered his conversation with remarks about his relationship with the various angels, the nature of the devil, and his visionary meetings with historical figures such as Socrates, Milton, and Jesus Christ. Somehow he did this in a way that people found endearing rather than disturbing. As Robinson wrote, there is a natural sweetness and gentility about Blake which, we, which are delightful. And when he is not referring to his visions, he talks sensibly and acutely. Well, that's fascinating. And that's the, you know, I want to keep reading. That's my only criteria. Again, this is William Blake versus the World by John Higgs, H-I-G-G-S. I pause for you to note that. Now, the last book is by Ruth Skurr, S-C-U-R-R. -R. I presume that's the way she pronounces it. I've never heard the name pronounced. She wrote a very interesting biography a few years ago on John Aubrey. That's how I know her work. That one's called John Aubrey, My Own Life. But this one is about Napoleon. Oh, no, not another biography of Napoleon. you got to be kidding me. Well, this one's titled Napoleon, A Life Told in Gardens and Shadows. Now you got me interested. Ruth Skur. I read again... Uh, paragraph from the introduction. Napoleon, a life told in gardens and shadows, draws on a wealth of scholarship, historical and contemporary, inviting the reader to look at the trajectory of his extraordinary life from unfamiliar perspectives. During the French Revolution, ideas about nature, human nature, the natural world, and exchanges between the two were at the center of fierce political debates and events. Nature was both venerated and desecrated. The Ancien Regime, the old allegedly natural social order, was destroyed, and a new meritocratic order centered on the revolutionary values of liberty and equality came into existence in name, if not always in fact. Napoleon's personal nature and his relationship with the natural world developed in this dynamic context. He came to see himself as an agent of healing, a patron of the sciences and progress, a person capable of bringing an end to the violence of the revolution and binding up its wounds. In fact, he unleashed a new era of dreadful destruction. The Napoleonic Wars cost somewhere between three and six million unnatural military and civilian deaths. I like the way she uses unnatural there after talking about the natural world. 
and the veneration and desecration thereof. Now, the next sentence really interests me. If Napoleon, this is a new paragraph, if Napoleon had not become one of the greatest military generals in history, he would have been a scientist. Well, you're going to have to read this book to learn more about that. But just that notion, that notion of keeping Napoleon's character open, so to speak, uh, with the sense of other possibilities, uh, so that he's not a congealed biographical subject. I think that's, that's a brilliant way to go. That's really interesting. Chapter one is titled First Gardens. And it is an epigraph from Michel Foucault. The garden is the smallest part of the world and the whole world at the same time. Well, I can say, since I've taken up gardening in my old age, that's true. Again, Michel Foucault, let me read that epigraph again. The garden is the smallest part of the world and the whole world at the same time. I'm going to read just the first sentence, her first sentence in this first chapter after that Foucault epigraph. His first garden was not much bigger than a grave. Oh, that's terrific. That's a really good way to begin that chapter. And that's all you're going to get from me today. So thanks for listening.